This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Poetry, a channel of the New Books Network. And today, we are going to speak with Shlomit Naim Naor. My name is Yakir Englander, you host, you host today. Naim Naor poetry is a unique voice in Israel. She is inviting the readers to delve deeper and engage in dialogue with the Jewish religion and texts which are relevant to the most banal everyday life. In her poetry, Shlomit Naim Naor searches for places to which the divine is not welcome, like abortions or the oncology department. She openly speaks about the unmeaningful lives of singular religious women and more. In her sensitive way, she shares with us her personal journey as an Orthodox Jewish woman who lives in Jerusalem, but her words speak universally to all of us. In this podcast, we will focus on her book, Things Unsaid from 2020, but also on her previous one, Know and Insight from 2016. Shlomit Naim Noor is a poet, an educator, and a religious feminist. She lives in Jerusalem with her partner and their three daughters. And now a personal note. In the past years, I feel that the dialogue or discourse in academy around Israel and Palestine and the conflict is focused mostly by speaking about the people of Israel and Palestine, and much less listening to the voices of the people from Palestine and Israel. Therefore, this podcast, as some others that I'm going to bring to you, I will invite the voices, the people, the people who walk in Palestine and Israel to speak with us, to share their lives, to share their books, some of these books were written in Arabic, others in Hebrew. May this podcast and others will be a light of peace. Shlomit Naim Naor, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure for me. It's such a gift to bring a voice from Jerusalem and to, to think together and to hear your, um, your poems and to, to, to learn about you. Can you share a little bit about your background, um, your voice in Israeli poetry 
is a new phenomenon that I think we speak about like 20 years maybe of religious um, voices who are coming and speaking also about the divine and about life and not hesitate to bring God into the dialogue or as a goddess. I, I wonder what do you have in your mind when you pray with poetry? So share with us a little bit about your background and how you came to poetry. Sure, so I was born in 74 in Ranana, which is a small suburban town not far from Tel Aviv. Uh, my father was a religious man from a Beitar a family connected to the revisionist movement and to Beitar. And my mother was a secular nurse from Haifa. Uh, they met in Hadassah in Karem in a hospital after my father was injured in the first terror attack in the Hebrew University in 68 in the library of the Hebrew University. And that's how they met. Uh, he was the injured. Uh, he was the son of a member of the Knesset. It was quite like in the news. And uh, uh, the joke was that the PLO will be invited to the wedding as the, as the matchmaker. <laughs> Uh, so I grew up in a family that comes from mixtures of ideas, and uh, I grew up in Orthodox and religious schools in Ranana, and um, uh, we lived in Canada and California for a year and a half, and I decided to learn Hebrew literature and philosophy in the Hebrew University, and I think in, in Jerusalem, and my grandparents lived in Jerusalem. And that was always the site of, uh, you know, a long vacation, wonderful weekends and, and Jewish holidays. And uh, Jerusalem always had a special place. Uh, uh, for me, it meant the world. And, and I have to say that it sounds very naive, but the fact that I'm raising my family in Jerusalem has, uh, has a lot of uh, meaning. And sometimes it's a burden to live in a historical city that every corner reminds you of a conflict or a Jewish text or a non-Jewish text, but it's here, it's very uh, vivid almost. Um, I, was, uh, I lived in London for three years when I was 28 and I realized I wanna come back to Israel and I wanna study literature and I want to, to be a poet. Uh, my father passed away when I was 24. Uh, he was ill, he had cancer and after nine months, he, 11 months he passed away. And um, until then I drew, uh, I thought to study in Betzalel and to become an artist. And after uh, his illness and his death, I, I could not touch uh, the paint anymore. And I started writing mm -hmm. and I started writing the, the year he was ill. I started learning at Beit Midrash Elul, uh, which is a cool. institute in Jerusalem where religious and non-religious men and women come together and study Jewish texts together. Mm. And the topic of that year was uh, Yom Kippur, Day of Entonement. And we had a lot of uh, writing exercise and that's how I started writing uh, the material for my first, my first book, which will come out 15 years later, but uh, mm. that's how I started writing the story of the illness, illness and the death through studying um, at Elul. And uh, 
I'm saying this because the, the, the death of my father is, uh, is a big uh, theme in my writing and also Jewish text and Jerusalem. So these are sort of pillars uh, uh, that I go through and come back to as we'll see. I wonder when you start writing poetry or when you were inspired to, to write poetry, um, who were the voices who spoke so intimately about the divine um, who, who were the um, inspiration for your writing? Because in a way, when, when I read your poetry, you push the boundaries. You, you push the boundaries, but as maybe I would say, you give an intimate critique that even when you critique, you critique with love and intimacy. It's from inside, it's not from outside. So I wonder, do you have some thinkers or images from Jewish history or other um, histories that inspired you? Uh, the poet that inspired me the most is Admiel Kosman. Uh, he's Berlin, a professor yeah. of uh, Talmud of Jewish literature. He now resides in Berlin and he's teaching there in the rabbinical school of the reform movement of the, Ge the Geiger school um, and in Postum University. And he's a brilliant poet. And his poetry uh, was um, rescue for me. So was the work of uh, Amir Gilboa. And there's a short poem by Amir Gilboa. I don't want to see black. Uh, I, don't, I do not want to see black, but gray comes um, from everywhere. And the, the last uh, stanza is, and the thing that cries in me the most is, and he's leaving it open. And for years and years, I walked with that poem by uh, Amir Gilboa and with the works of uh, Admiral Kosman. And Leah Goldberg was always uh, inspiration, but not in a healthy way. For many years, I felt that I could not be a poet because I will never be as good as Leah Goldberg, who was a phenomenal woman, I guess. And um, she knew 12 languages. She had double, double or triple PhDs. And she was a poet. And uh, she taught uh, literature in the Hebrew University. And she was an author. And she wrote plays. And she also uh, drew. And in her last years, she came back to drawing. And uh, for me, she was a great inspiration. Uh, it's funny because she is very formalistic. Most of her work is rhymed and my, my style is different. I, I barely use rhymes. I don't use any of the Greek uh, forms of, of poetry. Um, but uh, um, I think from her, I learned to say the things as they are, not to be afraid to say things. And from Admiel Kosman, I think he took the fact that um, that kind of hugging and wrestling of being part of a language, being part of the covenant and wrestling and finding my place within. And for me, for many years, that was um, like a lot of the theological questions came in my poetry. And sometimes uh, just to explain one stanza, I have to open the Talmud and, and show them. Um, I have something about um, uh, maybe Messiah, and it's quite uh, strange because I come from a Litvak family, and we're not Chabad, we're not into... Mysticism. 
mysticism. Right. But there was the, Talmud, the the saying in the Talmud that uh, three things will come to you when you're not thinking about them. And that is the scorpion, something you lost, and 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 the Mashiach. And then redemption, I guess. And this kind of uh, don't think about a white elephant uh, kind of method <laughs> of, of yeah. living really um, answered a lot, of, a lot of my philosophical questions. Mm. How does one know he achieved something? How would I know if I achieved what I want? So in one way, the answer of the Talmud is stop thinking about it. Just go in your way. Be cautious. Might be scorpions. You might find whatever you lost. You might bring redemption, but don't think about it that much. Mm. And um, knowing that the complexity and the multi-layering of Jewish uh, text allows uh, the worst thing to be written there and the most beautiful sayings to, to be there side by side. And I think that goes back to the responsibility of the learner. What am I adapting? What am I saying? This is a sacred text. I can, part of my, you know, adapting and adoption is saying, I'm choosing this part to be part of my heritage. I'm not accepting everything on like, kind of like say yes to all. No, I'm, I'm going and I'm picking and I'm deciding uh, what are my values? What suits the way that as a woman, uh, I, I, I see them as someone who lives in, in a Jewish modern state, what fits my set of values? I think we can see it very, um very deeply in your first book, No End in Sight, where you, many of your poems start with a quotation. And then after that, you, you give your interpretation, mostly as you mentioned about the Yom Kippur prayer and the, the work, the unique work of the priest in, in the temple. And I wonder um, if you can say in one of your poems, um, you speak about, um, the places where the divine is not welcome. The places um, where the divine, what, what do you wish that to happen between you and the divine? Um, and it's so, and it's like, it starts with a quotation from the old Jewish text for, and from um, a Midrash, an interpretation, right? That speaks about, um, about the divine and then, and what it's written in the sacred um, clothes, which called the tefillin, that Jews put in the prayer in the morning, and in the Jewish mind, also the divine have it. And the question is, what there is inside? And you give interpretation. Uh, I wonder if it's okay. I know that we don't have it in English, but maybe you can say a few words about this poem and about the idea. I think I can, uh, I can even... Um... Um, a free translation, like, you know, on the spot. Yes. Uh, it's called the uh, Gods of Houses because uh, part of the tefillin, it's like a small little black box. They look like a small black cube. So we can call it a house. It's the, the way it's uh, referred to in Jewish uh, literature. Uh, God's houses. Some houses God will never enter. For example, an abortion. Only Amja the doctor and the beautiful surgeon and the merciful nurse and the Anastas Anastasius, God will not. 
God will not enter the oncological units, not the children's oncology, and not oncology B, the room to the right next to the window. He will know we'll drive him out. Rope, rope, go away, we'll tell him. You had, um, I forgot the word, the one that puts people on the rope to kill them. God doesn't know if to enter the fertility unit. If the treatment will go okay, it's because of the professor. If the treatment will fail, it's because of him. What does he has to do with the blue signs on the belly and the arms? In God's prayer book, there's only one word. Sorry. Shlomit, can you, can you share with us a little bit about that? Sure. I was uh, lucky to study uh, uh, the Gemara, the Jewish text that deals with the story. And there is a beautiful discussion. What is written in God's prayer book in the tefillin and that black um, cube, which has Jewish text inside. And I felt that um, all the suggestions made by uh, those amazing uh, wise men of the second, third and fourth and fifth century in Babylon, they're quite um, inspiring, but they don't talk about my experience. And in the same way that in parenting and in teaching, we talk about the fact that uh, we as teachers, we have sort of to bend and eye level our students and parents should, you know, take out, take their authority away a bit for, to allow the children to grow up and to be adults too. I felt that this kind of dialogue uh, has to happen between me and, and God. And um, where is God? Where was God when I had an abortion? When was God when my father died in, in, in hospital, in the oncologist, you know, in the oncology? Uh, when was God when I went through infertility treatments? Um, and this feeling that for me to be able to be part of the game and to be, be able to, to believe I have to hear from God that he or she are sorry for whatever happened. And although I talk about very personal biographical station in my life, I think there's the bigger questions of, of the Jewish people. Um, you know, God was, we don't know where was God during the Holocaust, but hey God, you owe us an apology. And for someone who's living in Jerusalem through many conflicts and you know, um, where is God in this? God cannot be passive. We, we need this kind of dialogue. We need to hear that our efforts is noticed and, and um, that we're not alone, that God is listening and God is, um, is responding and taking part of this kind of conversation. You know, one of the things that I think um, happened in Israel, which is fascinating, that as people wish to have a dialogue with the divine, with God, um, but they, they demand a new covenant, a new relationship, as you just shared. And I think about the place of the poets in this process. And I think about another po poet, uh, very famous in, um, in Jerusalem, also from Jerusalem, Yehuda Michai, that speaks about the God and the mercy of God. 
And one of the fascinating things I think about this unique poet is that some of his poems became Jewish prayers, um, even in Orthodox um, synagogues, right? And one of the things, Shlomit, when, as I was reading and will read your poems is some of them are prayers. Um, you can pray, I can pray sometimes when in the morning your poems, in, for sure, as I prepared for this um, meeting. And I wonder if, Shlomit, you can share with us a little bit, like, did you have it, like, some of your poems for you, is it like a prayer, like St. Psalms or reading other poets? The funny thing is that sometimes I will not recognize my own lines. I remember that I was sitting down one evening and I saw this amazing conference about uh, modern Israeli poetry. And there was, there were beautiful stands. I was like, wow, that is so powerful. That is so interesting. And only after five minutes, I realized it's mine. So, so <laughs> I, I do cut, you know, um, cut uh, uh, kind of the connections with my uh, uh, poetry once it's out. Uh, but some things I, I, I do. Um, I wrote Himeni. I was asked part, um, by uh, Mashiv Haruach, which is a poetry group that I am part of, to, to contribute for the prayers for the high holidays. And I sat down and thought, like, what do I think about the prayers of the high holidays? And my answer was that actually I don't, I don't like them. It's always about a man. And Hebrew is a sex maniac language, as uh, Yonav Volach uh, uh, told us. And everything is about a male in the Hebrew language talking with a male who, who is a divine. And that is not my experience. And there is a beautiful... Uh, prayer that is said on, on the high holidays in the Ashkenazi communities. Um, I am the poor of, uh, uh, of all actions. I am, and it's a very male. It's about um, that my, 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 my um, beard is not long enough and, and it's other male attributions. And, 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 and I say that every year. And, and then when I had the option, I said, okay, I'm going to write something that it's going to be about a woman, a female, young girl, old woman can relate to something that really brings uh, this uh, experience of how does it feel uh, to be a woman and how can we sort of write our own prototype of, of, of divine text and the, the the, the, the kind of success that uh, this uh, poem slash prayer has that people argue if it's about uh, um, if it's about something to be said after you gave birth. Uh, a woman on Facebook wrote to me and said that she recited this on the grave of her mother after um, uh, a month when she came to visit the grave she for the stone setting she recited this song, uh, uh, this poem, a friend of mine got divorced and she asked me to read this in her divorce uh, ceremony that she had with her friends. And um, some people think it's about uh, the ritual of, of bathing, uh, the mikveh. And, and for me, it, it says that people are in need, women are in need for new um, liturgical text to be part of, of their, religious experience. 
And some, some of my poems, it takes me years to write. And this was, and I'm embarrassed to say, in five minutes. It just, in one go, it came to me. I didn't really edit this. And I really, I, I'm not a very spiritual person, but I really feel that was something that I was only a, a vessel and I was only a messenger and it really came from higher places. And um, yeah, should I read this? Yes, please. Hineni, uh, this is translated by Lisa Cutts. Hineni, and you will stand before yourself and say aloud that your mouth and heart are one, your arms spread and breathing deeply, a sea revealed before you, you who immersed and rose pure, not a trace within, and you will stand before your God facing the desert, facing the sea, facing the busy city, facing yourself as a child and facing what you will become in older age and you ward because you chose life, chose and forgave yourself for yesterday's sins and forgave those around you for their actions today and found compassion for each creation and found within love for all that your eye caressed and you will know that you are one and your name is One. Wow, thank you, Shlomit. I, you know, one of the things that as you was reading it in English, um, as you mentioned before that Hebrew is a sex maniac language, and now in English, I miss the, the fact that it's actually you speak to a woman. And, uh, you know, after so many years that we want to bring back the, the, the female voice, the English now doesn't let us. Um, but um, I also love how much you make the woman in, the in this poem per per slash prayer, if I may say, um, to be almost like the divine, that their name is one, that becoming united, that the she things has no that age. Exactly. Yes. Interesting. She's a young girl and she's an old woman. She's everywhere in the desert, in the sea. Fascinating. I never thought about that. And that, that is a sign that this conversation is good. And it's about creating new, new cards, not reshuffling old cards, <laughs> as uh, Theodore Zeldin would say. And um, I never thought about that. But I think there's something of, um, of that kind of uh, amorphic you know, there is no body. Uh, this woman, she's everywhere and she sees it all. And yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you. And, but Shlomit, now that we are aware of that, we are aware that some of your poems um, are going to become prayers or already became um, prayers. Does it shut you when you want to keep writing? You, you know, you mentioned at the beginning something so fascinating, and I actually heard you saying it also in one of the interviews in Hebrew, that by because you you loved Leah Goldberg, so sometimes someone who is so big is like, so what what should we say? And I wonder now that you know we we try to be honest with ourselves. As you know that some of your poems are becoming prayers, it, what it makes you inside? What's the feelings that walk with you around that? Uh, I think, first of all, it makes me humble. Mm -hmm. And um, I realize that um, my words are taken out of 
context. So it's not about the experience that I had. They, they mean different things to different people. I have a friend and she's uh, still single. And she says to me that she reads my book every time she lit Shabbat candle on Friday evening. She goes, sit down and she reads the book. And that, that's her Psalms. That's her reciting these words. And that gives her hope. And so it's, 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 it's responsibility and, and, and feeling humble. And I feel very grateful because it's for so many years, I felt in my experiences that my life is so idiosyncratic that it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I remember I was in a job interview not a while ago and someone said to me, but you're a poet. How can you manage other people? And I was like, forgive me. There's some assumptions being made here about what poets can do and not do. <laughs> and there was like kind of this uh, idea that poets are like lofty and like airy fairy and we cannot cling to things and we cannot do and we're not practical and we cannot uh, hold a budget. And this, so like, you know, uh, so people blame me for to be a poet and therefore not to be eligible to do this or that in the career world. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm known for my writing. And it's, it's very strange because it's like, it's, um, I never, I never thought and, you know, um, that my poems will, will, will um, be read by, by so many people. And I remember that I had a conversation with my nephew and he asked me like, why are you sharing all your experiences? It's like, it's embarrassing. Why should everyone know about this? And my answer, because this, and I think that, that answers, what do you ask now? It, it helps people. I think that empathy, as Richard Worry says, it's, it's making uh, a larger uh, sense of us, of we. We feel for more people. Uh, we, 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 we feel their pain. We, we feel their happiness. And, and my hope is that people that read my poetry, they feel more about other people. They understand more about being single. They understand more about those early stages of, of, rise, of raising a family and how difficult that is. They, they see uh, dealing with death uh, differently. And uh, the pressure is like, um, is, is getting higher and higher because you know people are like, are you working on your third book? And I'm like, yes. Oh, what it's gonna be about? I'm like, about my life. And um, I'm, I'm recovering from cancer and it's, um, it's a challenge, like how much of my next book is gonna be about cancer and how much is gonna be about my regular life that have nothing to do with cancer. I still have theological questions and I still have some meltdowns with my daughters and I still see funny things in places I didn't think before. And I'm still dealing with a lot of laundry that I have to cope with that symbolizes a lot of other things. And um, it's always a, a challenge, like what is the next thing uh, gonna be about? And I'm curious, I wonder, what is, was it gonna be about? <laughs> I love that you don't have the answers for that. How much of the conflict is part of your, I would not say part of your poetry, but part of your being that, you know, as you said, is what creates your poetry? I think there's so many conflicts in Israel that uh, I should ask. Which, <laughs> I apologize. I apo you, you are yeah, so <laughs> right. You're so right. I'm thinking about like, you know, the gifts that, you know, I, I hope Palestinian women will read your poetry or will meet you. That the middle, that women from the Middle East or of course also men. Yeah. So, you live in uh, Jerusalem as, as, as we open with. So, um, 
I studied for two years at the Mandel School of Leadership. And one of my best friends from there is a Palestinian woman from um, uh, Bakal Gerbia. And uh, our friendship uh, told me a lot about uh, what does it mean to be a minority in Israel and what does it be to be a majority. And these concepts of minority and majority also help me to understand so many things that Israelis are blind to. I think so many uh, Jewish Israelis are in the concept uh, that we are a minority because we've been there for so many thousands of years of history that once we establish a sovereign state, we still did not adopt a majority kind of responsibility and overlooking and holding the rights and be responsible for the being of the minority because we don't identify ourselves as a, as a majority yet. And, um, and through the, the eyes of uh, Hanin, Dr. Hanin Majadli, I learned a lot about what does it mean to be a Palestinian. And she has been a great source of inspiration. She, she forced me to write a poem about uh, early childhood education. And one of my poems is dedicated to her. Um, but living in, in Jerusalem, so every, you know, last night went out to Emeka uh, Faim Street, one of the famous streets in Jerusalem, with so many terror attacks happened upon. And I have a poem, but one of the cafes that was blown away with a bride the evening of her wedding. And it's, uh, for me, it's a question always that at first came across, came out in my poetry. I write, I write about the Café Hillel, uh, the Hillel Café, as a, it's the setting of a, of a date, uh, about a, this lovely couple that is eating their salad together, uh, exchanging, you know, um, uh, love words. And um, that poem uh, ends with, the, uh, with saying that um, uh, Monday morning uh, cups or coffee are still poured out, but this doesn't have any proof for our right, rightness or righteousness. And that came out before I understood where, what I wrote here. Um, before understanding that this is all can, can be a political poem as well. And uh, one of my poems is about, um, uh, it's called in English, uh, Municipal Bodies. It's really about that. I'll, I'll read it in English. Please, please. And it's about walking in Jerusalem and saying like, you're so, something is so wrong in this city. Uh, okay. She smears dull lipstick on gaps in the separation wall, conceals her indigen crouch with scars of neon and sunset, swears we, we will not awaken love or become aroused, and demands money up front. I screw her right back, take the rent money. To me are no grand capital. Get a good look at yourself. Holy Land Sting, Ghostly Katamun and Talbiye, Mute Beit Safafa and Abu Tor. From number eight on the Street of the Sages, apartment 23, you are nothing but a landscape. The city's beauty spoils the little foxes, and if my hatred were strong enough, I would smash the walls, throw the keys over Hevron skies, drenched in red, raise a sword over the city and bury it in a coffin. 
A bridge blinding the horizon waves its saber in vain. Tomorrow, we'll pay our property taxes. Show is incredible. In one poem, you have so many quotations um, from, the, from the Jewish text. And what I love that at the end of the poem, you go back to what we need to pay tomorrow. <laughs> And I think that's quite what I feel like. On one hand, uh, after my daughters were born in the, the Hadassah hospital, I received a beautiful note from the mayor of Jerusalem with verses from the Bible uh, of old people and, and babies will run around the city of Jerusalem. And that is one of the, the prophets, the comfort prophets that we're going to read this time of the year and the summer. And for so many years, that was like a, a fantasy. One day, old people and babies are going to run around Jerusalem streets. And that was a fantasy. We didn't live here. So on one hand, I'm living life full of redemption. On the other hand, there is occupation. On the other hand, um, you know, bribery of the Holy Land scheme and the unprivileged uh, Arab neighborhoods and East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. And this is all, you know, smashed together and it's, it's happening all at the same time. You know, sometimes I read um, a news uh, from, from the States, from the UK, where I lived for three years, and they're looking at Jerusalem, if it's something that could be separated into two cities. But it's something that, you know, it, it cannot really happen because it's so mixed up. And, you know, Betzafafa, it's in South West Jerusalem, and there's East Jerusalem, and there's Abu Ghosh, and it's like, what's going on? Like, some streets are starting here, ending there, and th that is part of the conflict, that it's so complicated, and I think that, you know, one way to think about it is that there is a conflict, but let's think how we can coexist. Let's think what a, a, the meaning of shared life can be in this part of the world. And maybe that is another, you know, venue that Israelis should, should explore more. And I think that something else um, that you bring is that you do not separate between the sacred, sacred and the profane. It's like, it's walking together, right? I mean, people cannot imagine one day redemption. It's, um, it's uh, paying the bill is part of your personal redemption when you know that you pay the bill and now you don't need to think about that. And, um, and, it's and also one. living in Jerusalem and paying the bills was the dream of my grand-grandparents to come back to Jerusalem <laughs> one day. So, you know, that is also an act of, of redemption in one way. And I think for some, so many Israelis, we, we're not aware that we were leaving we're living the dream of someone else because understanding that is that something that it's really hard to cope with. Mm. But I think that it's part of, of the story too, that. I think it's also Shlomit part of the complications that for our listeners from all over the world, that the word Jerusalem say so many dreams, you know, in Christianity and in Islam and in Judaism. And then like we have you, the people who live there, and so many dreams are, and so many pressure and so many expectations are falling on your shoulders. And you just want to walk to go to a coffee um, or to be with your daughters. Exactly. 
Like redemption is nice, but I have to go and pick them up for school, you know. <laughs> um, which bring me, which bring me to to another subject that you speak so um, openly, and this is um, in there in about being single and and being a mother. And I I ask you that there are two poems that speak with each other, in my humble opinion that um, one in the first book and one is the new book. Um, and I would love if we can read the first and we will share a little, you, you will share with us. And then I want you, if it's okay to read the second and sure. what's changed. Um, but oh. I, just, I, I just want Shlomit, if you can, before you read it, just say a few words because to be single, in, you know, in Western, let's say, American, New York, Brooklyn, um, is one thing. But to be single in, in Zionist orthodoxy is a different phenomenon. So please say a few words before you read it. So I got married when I was 36, which is a respectable age also in Western uh, societies. Uh, to live in an orthodox, conservative uh, family and society and not to be married by that age, that is something that was, one does not aspire to. There's a lot of pressure from the outside to uh, be married, to bring children, to, um, you know, um, sort of uh, pay the debts to your parents. And also everyone around is in couples. It's like, there's like, everyone got in couples and nobody told you about that and you're showing up and you're the only single person around. And um, you're, I also, I feel that it's, it's putting me in a vulnerable position that um, everyone can ask, how come you're not married? And everyone can give me uh, suggestions as you can see in this, uh, in this poem. And a lot of things that I read about, they really happened to me. And this uh, poem started with a taxi driver that I, um, he took me back home one evening. I never met him since. And he was like, are you married? I'm like, no. And he was like, why? And I was like, why? And um, this is what uh, came out of, of uh, that encounter. And taxi driver, if you're listening to us, thank you. So how come you're not married? Lighting strikes twice in an abandoned forest clearing and there is no witness. This is not how things should have happened and you had acquired all the virtues. You hoped eight times over a burning Chanukiah. You prayed in Uman, read the song of songs 40 days consecutively. You thought that at 26, you will be married with two kids. An ever rising list of disappointments. She is too choosy for sure. What is she looking for already? Does she really think anything better than this will ever happen to her? Everyone compromises in the end. Maybe this time it will happen. She does not really have a motherly voice. Maybe this time it will happen. Maybe you should try not talking at dates. You're simply too smart. Do not try to be smart. Maybe you should lose some weight. Yes, that will surely help. Maybe this time it will happen. Maybe this time, maybe. There is no place left for nature and its unrevealment and every taxi driver recognizes the wound. And will, and will the mind get distracted when Mashiach? Um, so here I mention a lot of um, 
virtues and mystical Judaism uh, of, of what should one do if she wants to get married and uh, reading the Song of Songs for 40 days. And that is quite known and praying in Uman in Ki not far from Kiev in the Ukraine, that is quite known too. And then um, one December, not uh, not long before uh, the, the holiday of Hanukkah of lights, my sister told me that there was this thing that if you jump eight times over a burning Hanukkah on the last evening of Hanukkah, you're going to get married for sure. And I was that desperate that I actually tried that. Luckily, <laughs> it all finished with no wounds and no fire uh, took on my um dress or uh, trousers, but uh, that was the most uh, adventurous thing I did to find uh, uh, to find my partner was uh, doing that. And um, I was I wrote this when I was not married. And this is what sort of like all the voices around me asking me how come I am not married. Um, and uh, the other one that uh, that completely uh, it's another take on that question. Uh, I was in a wedding celebration and I was asked when I got married and how old was I? And I said I was 36. And then one of the um, guests says, uh, did you have a family before you got married? And I was like, excuse me? It was like, yeah, did you raise a family before you, you met your husband? And I felt as if the whole world was in slow motion and all my life is like rolling up uh, in front of me. And after a day or two, I, I wrote this. In an answer to a question. No, I did not raise a family until I met the man I married. At age 36, I married. I could have been a mother to teenagers, to have married young, to have spent nights in lust or in silence, to crawl over where we'll be for the setter night. And why is the sink is dirty? Why always, always me and where were you? And to be divorced in bitterness, to do a diet or two, to dye my hair, to take an organized tour, to forgo faith and to repent, to recycle my mortgage, to buy an apartment or two, or at least to renovate the one we have already because the walls too must be replaced sometimes now. And to change cars every three years and to go on a banal vacation once to ski in winter and once to Europe or even once to India for two months with our four kids because that's the way we are. And we were divorced because we felt that love had died and then companionship had died, maybe. In fact, you died and so at age 36, I became a penniless widow. I certainly could have done all that and be created anew, but there was nothing. I simply lived and waited and traveled and read and returned and wrote and waited and went out on dates and smiled and lost weight and regained it and cried and went out on dates and talked too much and then smiled and shut up for there was nothing more to say about so what's new with by you and once again I waited and went out on dates and was silent and I wrote and I cried and I waited and decided and then tried and waited until he came and turned over everything so the messiah arrived the messiah arrived <laughs> and he turned everything Definitely. yep but uh the, that minute of, of realizing that i could have lived uh, a full life 
um, was really very powerful. Do you, do you feel that because of the situation, because of the importance of families in, in the Orthodox uh, Jewish world, what happened before marriage, it, it doesn't count? Uh, no, because I feel that I had my writing and my career and I traveled a lot to uh, many countries in the former Soviet Union and Europe and South America, uh, working as a Jewish educator, uh, traveled me a lot around the world. And it meant a lot, but for some people it meant nothing. Hmm. And um, it's very hard to explain now what, what did I, what was, what was I doing all those years? Because I was not waiting. I was, I was doing, I was um, learning. I lived in London for three years. I, I had a full life, but um, I think that um, wanting to have a family and not having it sort of uh, grade everything or coded that in this um, kind of uh, sense and question, like, was it all worth it? But it's not all my decision, you know? And I think some, some, some issues in life one can aspire to, but it's not, and uh, marriage is one of them. Relationship is one of them. It uh, requires some patience. <laughs> she means there is, a, it's a sensitive question, but you know, because you speak about such sensitive um, subjects, I, I feel comfortable to, to ask you because I think you can teach us. When you think about your daughters, one thing that, um, that, that came to my realization as I'm um, reading your book, um, your, your poetry, is that once um, that it's a question in these two poems about being touched or touch as a single person, because we are not we, in the orthodox world, there is not such option, um, at least until the past few years. Um, there is a waiting there, but the waiting to the Messiah, which is that guy, as um, um, is is also the freedom to be part of the world of touching with another person in essential sexual ways. And I wonder now that you raise daughters, who you don't know when they will get married, um, how you will how in this community you will touch, you wish to touch these subjects or what, which kind of poem you will write to them? Uh, I think that's part of the next book. What am I, how do I teach them? And I think the issue about uh, uh, sexuality and body, um, it, it's a great question. And I think it's a great challenge uh, to all parents uh, nowadays. I think the formation of the female body, uh, there, whether it's uh, sacred or profane, as we see that in popular culture, like it, it's very difficult. And, and I teach them to be happy with their body. And I teach them to, that they are responsible for their body. And some, uh, they should be asked if they could be touched. And you know, there was this phenomena I guess in many conservative uh, traditions of touching babies, of touching women that are pregnant. And I, I remember that when I was pregnant, everyone who touched my, my um, belly, I touched them back. 
and they will say to me, but I'm not pregnant. I will say, yes, but that doesn't give you any permission to touch me. Like people should not be touched unless they want to. And I think that bringing the notion of desire and it's not about acceptance. It's not about if she said she's okay. The question is, does, is there a desire there? And I think the shift that um, is, is another meaning of, of Mashiach is for people to live in, in desire and happiness within pleasure. And uh, it's something that I, I touch um, in my second book uh, here and there. And in my first book, I think this idea of loneliness and, and the lonely body, that is also a topic in Jewish literature, um, uh, part of Lamentations, that Echa is sitting by herself. She is in her period days and it's, 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 her blood is shown. She's alone. She cannot be touched. It's, it's, um, it has also another layer of, of, of spiritual meaning. And uh, I wrote somewhere about a, a lonely body crossing the 30s. So it's not the 30s of the New York streets, it's the 30s of age. And, and being a lonely body crossing your 30s has a lot of um, um, implications uh, that are psychological or biological, uh, but also I think theological, like what, what is, we were promised so many things and why, how come they're not happening? Who's, who's holding the responsibility for our life? Um, and, and that's something that I, I teach my daughters to is to be responsible for their life, to say what they want. Things have um, consequences um, and to be it for so many women to be answer the to answer the question what do I want is so difficult, and that's something that that is really I think a big topic. So, as we are coming to the ending, I want to ask for a gift. Um, until your books will be published in English, hopefully very very soon, there is one poem that you wrote, um, and it speaks about body images, which is one of the most most struggling today's subjects, I think, in, in our life. Um, question about being thin, being nothing. And you wrote a poem that personally speaks so deeply to me and I want to give it to, actually to all my friends who struggle with that. And I wonder if you can try to give us, uh, you know, your version, your reading uh, of this beautiful poem about thin um, woman it's called theme woman that every time it's uh, put on facebook like you know every few months or twitter instagram so a lot of women will say but it's also difficult to be thin and i'm like yes but that is not the point the point is that we're being judged right. all the time because of our bodies and this kind of estrangement that when we talk about thin women it becomes really wrong so to look at them so was it okay to stare at women that are not thin thin women's what, on what should thin women lay their waist upon? How are their body bones are arranged? What is setting them to the ground if not their weight? How should one hold them? What should their shirt stick to? How do they sit? How do they stand? How are they pregnant? How do they deal with bad news? Shlomit. Thank you so much for coming to the new books. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.